Well, I had always wondered what the African version of the Hallelujah Chorus might sound like. <laughs> and I think I just heard it, and it was beautiful. It was wonderful. Thank you so very, very much. I'm going to invite you to open up your uh, Bibles with me to John's chapter, in uh, chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 14 to 18 to us this morning, and then I'm going to, I'm going to comment on these uh, verses. John 1, 14 to 18. This is all part of the prologue, and we're coming to the last part of the prologue in John's gospel, this beginning word that he gives to us. And this is what he says. He says, And the word became flesh. That's the word that was in the beginning with the Lord, the word that was with God, the word that was God. Verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me or before me, because he was before me. He's from eternity. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I ask you now that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I do, I'm beginning actually today with a bit of show and tell. Um, I'm going to show you this, uh, this very old uh, Xerox copy. We don't call them Xerox copies anymore. This is a Xerox copy of a little book, about 96 pages. And you know how when you move from place to place and you set up office after office, your Xerox copies often get lost. This is, this is the prize gem in my you know, collection of theology. When I ran across it about 30 years ago, I just had to... Xerox it and take very, very careful, uh, very careful care of it. It was actually written by a young man, probably in his late teens, and his name was Athanasius. And the title of this is actually called On the Incarnation of the Word of God. And it was written about 315 A.D. It was written to a man named Marcarius, because it was actually written as a letter to Macarius by Athanasius. And as you'd expect from the title, uh, the incarnation of the Word of God, it's really based on John 1.14, and the Word became flesh, became incarnate, and dwelt among us. There was a huge controversy brewing at that time, just as big or even bigger than anything during the Protestant Reformation 1,200 years later. And this controversy at that time would boil over in just about four years after Athanasius wrote the Incarnation. And, and the controversy was really over this question. It was over the question of who is Christ? Is he God? Is he man? Is he somewhere in between? Is he divine but less than God? Is he... Uh, is he look human, but really he's 
more than human? Is he God? Is he man? Or is he something in between? And these questions may sound very abstract, you know, ethereal, but they're really not too heady to be practical. The entire truth of Christ hinges on the answer to the question and what it means to believe in Christ and whether there really is any salvation at all. If Christ, the word who was God, merely appeared as a man, merely appeared in a human form, then he only appeared to die for sin. There's no sure salvation because no true and final atonement for sin has been made. There's only perhaps the sign of God's love without the substance of the sacrifice that was necessary in our place. But on the other hand, if Christ is fully man, but less than full deity, fully man and divine, but divine in the sense of deeply spiritual or very spirit-filled or very godly, then again, actually, there is no salvation. It means Jesus hang, hung as a man on the cross. God did not. He did not meet the demands of his own justice against us for our sins. He did not take our sin upon himself in order to forgive us. He did not bear his own punishment for our sin. The gospel, the gospel, what is the gospel? The gospel is that when Jesus suffered and died on the cross, there God loved you. It's not just a sign of his love. Sure, it's a sign of his love. But it's only because the substance was there. It was there that God loved you. And the treacherous, sinful humanity that you and I share requires a salvation in which God has fully borne our humanity in order to fully satisfy his own justice. This is how we know God loves us. This is how we know his mercy is real. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. Now in God's providence, young Athanasius was caught up with those inseparable truths of the love of God and the identity of Christ. And he was caught up with these two inseparable truths when the church was challenged to deny Christ's identity and to nullify God's love. A decade after he wrote on the incarnation of the word of God, now, a decade later, he was a very young bishop of Alexandria, and Athanasius stood opposing a monk by the name of Arius who taught against the deity of Christ. In fact, his his followers, Arius' followers, were taught to sing and to chant this phrase. There is, it was about Christ, to sing and chant this. There was once when he was not. There was once when he was not. Arius taught that Christ was not eternal. That he was a, a divine, in the sense we talked about earlier. He was a divine creature through whom God created the world. But he was less than 
He was not God. He was not fully God. And though the Council of Nicaea would condemn that teaching in 325 A.D., the battle continued for more than half a century. And for much of that time, this is shocking, but for much of that time, under fierce pressure from Roman emperors, the church adopted Arian's views. And it was not until 381 A.D., the Second Council of Constantinople, Constantinople, that they finally put down the Arian view for what we now know as Trinitarian Orthodoxy. Now, Athanasius himself had been party of this great debate for 47 years. He died about eight years before that second council of Constantinople. But there was no doubt then, and there's been no doubt ever since, that the triumph of the truth of the triune God, that God is one God who subsists of three persons, consubstantial, as the doctrine says, with each other, the same substance of being with each other, of each other, the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that the triumph of this truth was largely the fruit of the life of Athanasius. He declared the full deity of Christ as well as the full humanity, and no passage or section of Scripture did he draw from more than the writings of John, the Gospel of John. And so over the course of nearly half a century in defending this, he had directly, can you imagine it? He had face-to-face personally confronted three Roman emperors. He'd been exiled by four Roman emperors. He'd survived numerous plots against his life. But he was adamant, and he was famous for declaring that those who maintained there was a time when the Son was not robbed God of his word like plunderers, like plunderers. They're plundering God. They're taking his word away from him. I have to tell you a story about him and some of the challenge that he faced. At one point, Athanasius was accused of murdering a bishop. And in proof of that, his accusers produced the bishop's severed hand. I'm sorry, I don't want to be too graphic here. The severed hand. And they said that Athanasius was working magic with that severed hand. And he was denounced as the black dwarf because he was small and because he was African and he had the dark skin of an African man. So at a trial ordered by the emperor, Athanasius was his own defense attorney. So he brought into the court his chief witness, all wrapped in a cloak. And when the cloak was thrown back, lo and behold, the witness was the very bishop that he'd been accused of murdering. And he went over to the bishop and to his cloak, and he, you know, dramatically raised one sleeve. And there was a hand. And then he went over and he raised the other sleeve just as dramatically. And there was a hand. And he looked at his accusers. He looked at his accusers and he asked them this question. From whence did you cut off his third hand? (laughs) So where was his third hand? Athanasius was famous as a wit 
among other things. And they responded, his accusers responded, responded that what took place there in the courtroom was one more act of Athanasian magic, that he had caused the hand to grow in place of the hand he cut off. And the court accepted, accepted their explanation. And Athanasius had to flee for his life. So I think it's safe to say that the deck was stacked against Athanasius. Raises an interesting question, though, doesn't it? How much prejudice, blind prejudice, are you willing to face for the love of God and the truth of who Christ is? Athanasius read John's prologue, this section of the gospel that we've been focusing on, both as a revelation of the love of God and as a revelation of the truth of Christ. And when he wrote The Incarnation, his book, to Macarius, he opened the letter by saying this, Now Macarius, true lover of Christ, we must take a further step in the faith of our holy religion and consider also the, world's, the words becoming man and his divine appearing in our midst. That mystery the Jews traduce, which means denounce, the Greeks deride, but we adore. And your own love and devotion to the word also will be greater. This is not only about truth. This is about love. It's about the love of God and the truth of God so that we know to love him in return. And to see how John brought together these ideas of, of love and truth in this passage I'm going to draw your attention simply to one item. I'm going to draw your attention to the term that's translated in the King James Bible, only begotten, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, or his only son, as the ESV puts it, or his one and only, as the New International Version puts it. This is the term in verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the first time it's used, the only, the only begotten of the Father. The Greek word is mono, like one, genes, like genus or race or class or type. And monogenes really means one of a kind. It means one of a kind. You find it nine times in the New Testament. Five times it's used of Jesus, and four times it's used of a beloved son or daughter of, of someone. It can refer to a firstborn child. It can refer to an only child, but not necessarily to either one. And as a key example of this in Hebrews eleven seventeen, this is what we read about Abraham. We read that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. That's monogenes. His only begotten. His one and only. His only son. Now Isaac was neither Abraham's only child, nor was Isaac his first child. Ishmael was his first son. But what the term underscores is that Abraham was offering up the son whom he loved as no other, who meant most to him, 
from whom he, Abraham, would withhold no good thing and to whom Abraham would never think of doing harm. And why is this underscored? It's underscored to show what's Hebrews 11 about, faith. And it's written to underscore that Abraham's faith in God was so great that he was willing to sacrifice his dear and only, his one and only Isaac. Only begotten is used in Luke's gospel three times, chapter 7, 8, and 9. In chapter 7, as Jesus entered a village, a little village called Nain, he came on a funeral, and a young man was being carried out to be buried. And he's described by Luke as the only son, that's the phrase, the only son of his widowed mother. To underscore what? Her loss and sorrow. She has just lost what meant most to her in all the world. And the text says Jesus had compassion on her. He told her, do not weep. And he then raised his son from the dead. You have similar cases of healing of children in Luke chapter 8 and chapter 9, where those children are called monogenes, only begotten, dear, dear, dear one. So when we come to John 1.14, and we read that the word became flesh, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, what we're reading there is how God so loved his son when he became a man. He had so loved him from all eternity. But what John's focused on is this, this man, Jesus, who walked among us, who dwelled among us. God so loved him. He's one and only. And so he withheld nothing from him. He denied him nothing of himself. His glory was the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. He lavishly bestowed his glory on his Son. He was only begotten. And when we read then in verse 16, for from his fullness we all received grace upon grace. This again, the term, the use of the word fullness confirms the Father withheld nothing from him, nothing of his deity from his son. Why? Because he is his only begotten son. A term not used to describe the logos in relation to God in eternity, but it is used to describe him when he became flesh, as we have in human. He is his only son. That's the way on this earthly planet we can understand the relationship between them. His one and only, his dearly loved. In verse 18, we read, no one has ever seen God, the only God. And that's the terms used, God, the mon monogenes theos, <laughs> the only begotten God. What a bold, bold term. The only God who is at the Father's side, which is literally in the Father's breast or in the Father's bosom, has made him known. Why, Why is that significant? Because those who love each other most deeply, those who, those who know each other most truly, they're the ones who can make each other known to someone else. It was absolutely perfect that Christ made the Father known. No one else could do that. No one else could make God known 
God the Father. No one else could do this but the Son. And he did. Such was not just their shared being, it was their shared love and this devotion and knowing of each other. John adds this image. That the son was in the bosom of the father. What does that mean? The son was in the bosom of the father to underscore this. It's an old phrase. It's not used very much anymore, but it has been used commonly. What do you do with a beloved son or beloved daughter or with a brother or sister who's beloved and you come to them? Well, I pull them close to me. I... I uh, right? Don't we? We take them to our breast. There's nothing sexual about it. We take them to our bosom. We take them to ourselves emotionally and symbolically. We take them into our heart. That's why we do it. And we love to feel the life in the chest of the one whose chest we're touching. We love them. We take them to ourselves. Now, do you do that with just everybody? Of course you don't. I hope you don't. You do that with those who are dearest to you. Dearest to you. Well, that's what this passage is talking about. In John chapter 13, verse 23, during the Lord's Supper, John tells us that Jesus favored one of his disciples above all others. And he favored that disciple above all others by giving him that unique position of affection and honor at his right hand at the banquet table. He doesn't say these words that I just said. All that John, the way John describes it is that he was in Jesus' breast. They're in Jesus' breast. He was in Jesus' breast. And literally, he was against Jesus' breast, next to Jesus' breast, because the way people banqueted back then, you know, they'd be on sofas that stretched away from tables, and everybody would be on their left side, right? So if Jesus is here and I was here, I would be leaning against his his, his breast. But the point here is not at all to describe a physical posture. The point that's in view here is the meaning. And when John identifies that one who is against Jesus' breast, he describes him as the one whom Jesus loved. He was referring, as we know, John was actually referring to himself. And I would not doubt at all that this was the very occasion, the Lord's Supper. Think about how much impact and and emotion, you know, the intensity of that last supper. I have, no, I have no problem, imagine, that this was the very occasion when Jesus welcomed John against his breast, leaning back against him to talk to him, that inspired John to forever identify him this, this, himself this way. I, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. Peter was there, you remember, at the last supper? Peter was there. And he had a hard question to ask Jesus. And what Peter wanted to know, 
was who was going to betray Jesus because Jesus had just said, one of you will betray you. Do you remember what Peter did when he had that question? John tells us in his gospel, he turned to the disciple whom Jesus loved against Jesus' breast and said, you ask him. You ask him. Why did he say that? Because Peter knew Jesus would not refuse him. That's why. John 3.16 reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And now, having thought about it this morning, we know why John writes so loved. Why he writes God so loved the world. Because he would give up for suffering and death the one who knew his dearest embrace and his everlasting love. And for him to do that for salvation can only mean, can best be described as God so loved the world. We cannot imagine how great his love for the world is until we realize, as Paul would later write, if God did not withhold his son, his only son, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Athanasius knew it. There is no truth of God apart from the love of God. And there is no love of God apart from the truth of God. And there is no truth of God and there is no love of God apart from the word becoming flesh even Jesus Christ. At the end of his life, when Athanasius died and he was buried, the inscription that was written on his tombstone read like this, Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. And the faith prevailed. And the same calling and the same challenge and burden rests on us. And I would encourage those of you who, are, who don't know Christ, you know, as your Savior, as your Lord, please take this very, very much to heart. This is what we're all about. This is not just the truth of God. This is the love of God. On the cross, when Jesus hung on the cross, God loved Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the gospel of John and all that it teaches us. We thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ, people like the great Athanasius, very humble man in life, we're told, humorous even, under great duress, but fearless for the truth. He would not allow theologians he would not allow the world to plunder from god his word the logos christ um, we thank you so much for that stalwart testimony and faith and we thank you for the revelation of it in scripture and we pray you'd speak comfort and peace and life to our hearts may we return to you love as you've poured it out to us may we confess to you revelation as you have revealed it to us 
Amen.